Today, I am here with Andy Rue Forrest and Janessa Krasnow, the co-founders of Feel Good Voting, a nonprofit group dedicated to turning out the vote among young people through an innovative digital campaign. Uh, so first of all, I'd like to ask you both what led you to start Feel Good Voting? Uh, when did you found the organization and how it ha has it evolved since then? <laughs> saw Andy just point at me. You know, you want me to go? I think we both probably tell the same story because there's there's one story from two points of view, which is the story I like to tell is that, you know, Andy and I both have careers as entrepreneurs, him in restaurants, entertainment, tabletop gaming, and and he then became an activist. Uh, or he always has an activist nature, I would say, and was working with an organization called Population Media Center, really focused on women's reproductive rights and health and well-being throughout the world. And it was a behavioral change media company. And he brought me in to start talking about the craft of story because he was very dedicated. Anything Andy sets his mind to, he does 100 percent and with full vigor and force. And so he brought me in to help with the craft of story to increase donors and things of that nature. And I am a longtime activist. I am an, I have a, a varied career in experience design and environmental design and future thinking. And I like to tell people I'm an experiencer when they ask what I do. I like to experience as many different realms as possible. And I have been running an activist newsletter. I always canvas in swing states. Um, and Andy and I started talking about creating a values-based media company. And as we were doing this, we were playing with lots of different ideas that were really fun to play with. And around the same time, he looked at me and he said, we should do something around getting out the vote. And I was like, I was just thinking the same thing. And that was back January, early February, and that led to us launching Feel Good Voting. Wonderful. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Andy? Um, just that I think as an activist, as you know, as Janessa's activism, my activism, one might always think about how can I have the biggest impact on the issues? How can I just take what's inside of me and have that and, and move, move, make the, the, the biggest contribution to positive good? And so I'm really focused and very obsessed with mass media. I think it's the most powerful and most underused tool to create positive behavior change. And Janessa completely sees that because she's a storyteller, because she's worked in media, uh, both when she was at Microsoft, but at other, at, at other companies that she started as well. And so we are really centered around how do we use media, and right now we are using social media, to um, build social justice and environmental sustainability. And, and, and that is why we were really pointed at the, at the November 3rd election. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, my second question is that, uh, so different campaigns and nonprofit groups have tried a multitude of methods to mobilize disenchanted young voters. Uh, so my question is, 
uh, what inspired you to work with micro influencers on social media to turn out the youth vote? What inspired that specific strategy? There are a lot of groups that are working to get out the vote, to register people and to get out the vote. Many of these groups, like many people in politics, are kind of obsessed with the issues. They just kind of feel like if we could just explain the issues to you clearly, you would just agree with us and then you would take action by voting or some other action. If we could just tell you about climate change or the Supreme Court or about you know, uh, immigration, but that's not actually the way people make decisions. And if you look at the behavior science data, people make decisions based on their peer group and based on the influencers or the role models that they follow. Uh, that's why we're so polarized and divided geographically in this country, because people tend to think like the people around them. So we use behavior science principles on social media. And, and one of the key pieces of behavior science media, as, as, as shown by Albert Bandura at Stanford University and all of those folks who came after him, is that the messenger is more important than the message. And so micro-influencers which we define as 10,000 to 200,000 followers, really have that, the data shows they have a, a more loyal, trusted type of following community than mega influencers, than celebrities. And so we, we, we use them or we partner with them to make a voting message, into, to weave a voting message into their programming. And we don't necessarily do it about issues. We do, uh, you know, the most successful piece of media we've had to date is a dancing video on TikTok that has voting captions on it. So this is what behavioral scientists would call indirect messaging. We're going after people so they can bond with an influencer and then bring voting into the conversation. Wonderful. Um, Janessa, do you have anything to add to that or should I move on? It's a very complete answer. And what I would add is in this, when we decided to go down this path, um, what we are discovering is that there are so many people hungering to help and, and to plug in to advance progressive, both social justice and environmental causes in our, in our country. And that we have tapped into people who are just eager to participate and didn't know exactly what they could do. So there's a deep enthusiasm with the micro influencers that we're talking about that they actually have a voice in helping get out the vote. And they seem, the ones that I'm speaking with in particular are overjoyed at the opportunity to create messages to inspire the people who follow them to vote. So one follow-up question I'd have about that then is um, there's, there's kind of a common refrain that uh, teenagers use social media to escape from reality, to escape from the kind of harsh truths of life. Um, so I'm wondering if you have encountered uh, in, in your initial collaborations with micro-influencers that there are any sort of unexpected hurdles or impediments that you've found um, based on the fact potentially that um, yes, you're, you're contracting, you're, you're collaborating with micro influencers to spread a message of voting, but perhaps teenagers might be, um, be somewhat 
react somewhat allergically to seeing a political message, even from someone trusted, because it's on a platform that they are intending to use to escape. Have you, have you observed that thus far? Yeah, well, some micro-influencers are not game. Fortunately, that's the minority. But Janessa can tell you a story about um, somebody who I think that might be your, your goddaughter or your niece. We won't use her name. Um, but what, your react, what her reaction was to doing this. Because we, we picked her out. We thought she'd be great as a micro-influencer. I, I think there's two answers to what you're saying. I want to follow up with what Andy's saying, which is um, we have, you know, I... I have this young person in my life who's a stand-up comedian. She's super funny. Her, her messages would be perfect because they're irreverent and kind of sardonic and just snap heavy, you know, current. And when we ta- asked her if she wanted to participate with us, she basically said, most of my followers are non-voters and I don't want to risk offending them. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. They're our target, they're our, they're our target demographic. Let's get them. And she really was afraid of upsetting her audience and losing fans. And it's, un- it's understandable, you know, she's in a small, you know, she hasn't exploded yet. So she wants to, to be smart or savvy about what she's doing. I think she would have done really well with us. So like Andy said, there are some people that don't fit the mold. But the thing I do want to say is that I think I'm not sure that, that it's true that teenagers are using this to escape from reality. I think social media is reality for people, especially in a time of COVID. Like Andy and I founded this company pre-COVID. We, had, we knew we were gonna do an all digital engagement, but we did not know how, how important digital was gonna become because of, of the virus. And what we're discovering is that um, a lot of people, like I said earlier, just want to do something that's going to make the world better. And I think this, the, the, what we know is that if it doesn't ring authentic, it's not going to work with this demographic of under 30 non, you know, voters or potential voters. So authenticity is really the most important thing that we're running up against. And that, that's true if, if an influencer is like, this isn't authentic to me. I can't do this. I'm stretching. They're not the right influence for us to work with. If they're like, yes, I've been wanting to say something and I'm super excited to do this, then we're, we're in and they're just telling their truth. I would also say, Duncan, that um, there is no escapism. Um, you know, there's a, there's a massive amount of women on this planet who have um, modeled their early girlhood after Disney princesses by watching movies, um, you know, and, and men and boys are the same way, is that we take these role models from the stories we, we, we watch. And now Gen Z, you know, well over 95% are on social media and only 9% are visiting what I might call a news source or a traditional news source. Um, and they self-describe that they get enough of their news from their friends and from other social media uh, influencers. So, you know, is, 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 is Trevor Noah uh, an escape? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think he's a, a big source of information for people. And if, I'd like to just add one thing to that, too, which is, you know, none of us expected there to be an uprising in the middle of this either. And so social media has allowed for no, a number of things that are, that are 
one, we know we know the importance and the depth and of intensity of Black Lives Matter because we're seeing on social media what's happening to Black lives. There's been an organizing factor because of that. Social media has organized protests around the company, country, around the world, actually, where people have been able to tap in because of their social media channels. And what we're just saying to people is that social media is where people are getting their source of information. And if we can tap into creating a sense of consciousness and a sense of, of if when I participate, like when I go to a protest, it feels good to be in solidarity. It feels good to be in community. You know what? So does voting. It feels good to participate. It feels good to make your voice heard. And social media is just a channel where we can make that, make that feeling, that, that connectedness to civic engagement, to connectedness to protests, connectedness to humanity. It just shines in that environment. Absolutely. Um, so just to clarify, uh, who specifically is your target demographic? Why did you choose that demographic? And then within that group, are there any specific subpopulations that you're uh, pursuing with this strategy? Well, we were very influenced by the Knight Foundation's report called 100 Million Project, uh, which came out in 2019, mapping 12,000 non-voters across the country and showing particularly the behaviors of the majority of those, of those non-voters who were young, 18 to 30 years old. But when you look at the, the, the demographics of the, that group of the non-voters, you see that um, if they do turn up and vote, that communities of color, people of color and young white women vote overwhelmingly for social justice and environmental sustainability policies or for the candidates who represent those policies. So because that we are very mission focused, we, we go after those communities and we try to engage and energize them because um, that, you know, they have the greatest odds of voting towards those, towards those, um, those issues which are important uh, to us. Absolutely. Janessa, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that, you know, for some reason in some sort of propaganda machine, voting, the act of voting has become status quo, when actually the act of voting is the biggest form of revolution. That's where change happens. And, you know, we lost a great leader in, in John Lewis on Friday. And, you know, he gave his life literally to get the right to vote for African-Americans around this country. And when we tap into the fact that there's voter suppression and things that are preventing people to exercise their right as a citizen of this country to vote, it's, it's really frightening. And it becomes more important for the young people of our country who are creating our future to understand that when they vote, they get to have a voice in the change they want to see. And since there are more of them than there are the older voter, young people could really be setting course. Whereas older voters are voting for people who look like them and act like them and think like them. And, not, and then we're having minority majorities win. So we need the majority to show up. And the majority is in that youth vote. 
Absolutely. Um, following up on the night report, are minority and women and LGBTQ um, communities, do they make up uh, a disproportionate percentage of the young non-voter group? Or what, it, what is the, prominent, uh, the, the, the primary group composing that 100 million? Well, the Knight Foundation breaks them down um, both in traditional demographics and in psychographics. And so it does come up with six different categories that it puts uh, folks into. In traditional demographics, they pretty much break, I think, evenly across the way we would expect them um, uh, to, to break. And there are even some ones that are in, um, in upper socioeconomic status. But, they, but the numbers go up when the, as the income goes down, and the numbers go up as the education levels go down. Hmm. Great. Uh, and then finally, so come November, with that November 3rd Election Day target, how do you plan to quantify the impact of Feel Good Voting's efforts to mobilize youth voters? Uh, and or how do you plan to evaluate the success of the micro-influencer strategy in particular? Well, one thing that's important to remember is that we put links on all the media. And we put uh, unique URL codes on both to track the actual message of the media and the influencer. So we can tell what influencers and what messages are effective. And, and we want to evaluate and iterate uh, as we go on a, on a daily basis. We're doing that. Um, so we have a morning scrum and we look at the data and we say, okay, let's do more of this and less of this type of thing. So there are really three ways that we can evaluate this in the long run. We can look at KPIs on the internet, and that kind of tells us if we're winning a popularity contest, which is important in our model because we're not doing paid campaign ads. We're doing viral-type videos. So um, popularity does, does correspond to our reach. But all of our links that we put next to the media um, allow people to fairly effortlessly slide right into our voting tools. And so you can register to vote, request a ballot by mail, find your nearest polling place by clicking on the link. And we can see who's doing that. We can see the number of click-throughs and we can see if you are, so we can really tell in a very quantifiable way how the, the efficacy of this. We hope, uh, third way, we hope that uh, as we move past this and we get um, a little bit further down the road to do randomized control trials of what we're doing because we believe we are creating the most cost-effective means of turning on a net voter who's interested in social justice and environmental policy. And we, we want to do that with the, with the scientific research community that really believes in randomized trials. And a randomized trial would would include um, looking at people, a treatment group of people who, who saw the messages and people who didn't in the control group of people who didn't see messages, and then comparing that to the, to the actual voting roles uh, of who showed up and vote, uh, who showed up and voted um, after the election. Because in this country, we don't know who you voted for, but we can tell if you voted. And so we can compare that to people who saw our messages and people who didn't see our messages. Yeah, I think that is a very 
thorough and complete answer. And I will just add a heartfelt component to that, which isn't measured by data necessarily, but it's measured in the enthusiasm of the people we work with and the people we're partnering with and their continued desire to work with us. And I think already, well, you know, we've just started releasing content this month and we're already seeing some of those KPIs come back and, and show us what we can do better and where we're doing really well and what platforms to focus on and things of that nature and what demographics are registering. What we know is that in the way we have rapidly built a team, a virtual team, it's very hard to build culture virtually and the enthusiasm of the people who have joined us and their desire to continue deepening this work, including the influencers. I think at the end of this come November 3rd, we're going to have, you know, an entire team of hundreds, if not more people who have worked with us and they and my guess is they will want to keep working in this way because it matters. Absolutely. 